Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... Nine, that's the number of Democratic candidates on the ballot running to be the next U.S. representative for Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District. The seat, currently held by Congressman Joe Kennedy III, opened up back in November when Kennedy announced his run for U.S. Senate against Senator Ed Markey. COVID-19 has made in-person campaigning difficult for these nine Democratic candidates and for their would-be constituents looking to make an informed choice. That's why we've invited all of the candidates to take part in a special three-part under-the-radar Congressional Candidate Forum. All nine agreed to be randomly divided into groups of three. A note to listeners, we taped the three parts of the forum on Monday, August 10th. Three days later, Dave Cavell dropped out, throwing his support to candidate Jesse Murmel, but he remains on the ballot. Later in the show, this is the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. She's the first music to celebrate the 19th Amendment centennial, the Boston Landmarks Orchestra special tribute concert. But first, joining me remotely for part two of our Congressional Forum, Alan Casey, social entrepreneur, founder and CEO of Be the Change Incorporated, and co-founder of City Year, an education-focused national service program for young adults. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Kelly. Great to be with you. Natalia Linos, epidemiologist and executive director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard. Hello, Natalia. Hi, Kelly. So great to be with you tonight. And Ben Siegel, Brookline attorney and former director of client and community relations, special counsel at Mintz Levin. If elected, he would become the first Latino elected to represent Massachusetts in the United States Congress. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks, Kelly. So great to be with you. So first, let me uh, remind our listeners that the primaries are on September 1st, just around the corner, that early voting began on August 22nd. Mail-in ballot applications have to be in by August 26th. Those are the applications, the ballots themselves, by September 1st. This is the second group of candidates we're talking to from now until voting day, as we've said, as part of our forum. However, you can listen to all three groups online now. Whoever wins the Democratic primary will then face one of two Republican candidates also running for the seat, Air Force veterans Julie Hall or David Rosa. I'm going to start with uh, a few overarching questions. Um, To you, Alan, uh, first, America is battling several pandemics, the infection, the economy, and the battle for racial justice. With so many issues to tackle, which would you prioritize that directly address your fourth district constituents' concerns, but also address the current national and global issues? Well, Kelly, you're right. We are facing an unprecedented historical moment. And I actually think that the answer is to tackle them in an integrated way. 
the bad news is the Trump administration has made a complete mess of all of it, refusing to acknowledge the coronavirus, still no national strategy, fomenting hatred and division from the very day he announced uh, and feeding the fans of racism. But the good news is the American people are responding in an extraordinary way that should give us all hope from the healthcare workers to everyone we realize essential workers now, our grocery store workers, our sanitation workers, our teachers, people making sure our kids are still getting school breakfast and school lunch, even when they're not in school, taking care of our elderly. And this extraordinary racial justice awakening now, more than 70 straight days of peaceful protests from 30 million people. I think we're entering a New Deal moment where we, can, we need big, bold, progressive ideas tackle all three of these at once. So I've proposed things like a million young people in national service. I've proposed a federal jobs guarantee, including emergency wage support to keep to save our small businesses and keep people in their jobs. I've proposed an American Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission. So we take this extraordinary protest energy from the streets and, and lead to major cultural policy and legal change. I've, I propose that with Cornell William Brooks, past president of the NAACP, who I'm honored is supporting me, endorsing me in this race. I've proposed Restore the Dream accounts, where young people would get $15,000 when they're born, paid for by the estate tax, and by the time they're 19, it's worth $50,000, and they just do one year of service. That gets at the income inequality and the wealth inequality gap. So I actually think the answer is to do what we did during the New Deal, big, bold, transformational, new thinking, new ideas, and we can tackle all three of these at once. Thank you. Natalia, same question. America battling several pandemics, the infection, the economy, the battle for racial justice with so many issues to tackle. Which would you prioritize that directly address your fourth district constituents concerns, but also addresses the current national global issues? So, Kelly, I entered this race because I'm an epidemiologist, someone who has worked my entire career on global health issues, but also at the interconnection of health equity, focusing on racial injustice, and climate change. And I agree with Alan, we have to think about this as interconnected and we have to respond in a way that is comprehensive. I put out a plan, it's a 25 page plan on my website that talks about how do we reopen safely? How do we recover by investing in our small businesses, ensuring that childcare centers can open? And how do we rebuild by aligning this recovery effort with the Green New Deal? You know, Kelly, a lot of people think that I'm an epidemiologist who has been in the lab for the past 15 years, but that's not the case. I'm the only candidate who really has global experience. I worked at the United Nations for a decade, leading work on uh, income inequality and poverty, leading work on climate change and health, and leading work on global pandemics. And I also served as science advisor to the New York City Health Department, the commissioner, at a time when Black Lives Matter first emerged and trying to change the narrative in New York City from one that explicitly called out racism as the driver of health inequities. So I have been doing this work with governments and in governments for a very long time. And I think that this moment is our unique opportunity to transform a tragedy into action. And, you know, with 5 million Americans having been infected, over 160,000 having lost their lives, the projection being that we're going to reach 300,000 by the end of the year, the next Congress is going to be critical to get us back on our feet. And that means... How do we develop and roll out a vaccine safely and equitably? How do we reopen schools? Kelly, I'm a mom of three kids. I have a seven-year-old and three-year-old twins. I fear, like every parent across the district, that if we get this wrong, we're setting our country and our kids and our teachers on a path 
for greater inequality that we're going to have to deal with in years to come. So I'm excited to step in. It felt urgent and necessary because I have the unique skill set for this unique moment. Thank you. Ben Siegel, same question. Thank you so much, Kelly, and it's great to be on with you again. As you know, both of us were named one of the 100 most influential people of color in Greater Boston, so it's great to be uh, on this show with you. We absolutely need to connect and uh, interrelate all three things, the infection, the economy, and justice. Look, I I was the only candidate in this race when I jumped in to talk about combating hatred, bigotry, racism, and anti-Semitism. I didn't do it now after COVID because it was convenient or after the murder of George Floyd. We've been talking about this since day one. Um, So look, we have to absolutely agree with Natalia and Alan. We have to contain this virus. We need to put science over politics. We need equitable distribution of the vaccine when it comes out as well. But we need to also support and protect our community, especially the most vulnerable. We know our black and brown communities are contracting uh, COVID-19 at double and sometimes triple the rates of their populations. They're getting tested less, they're getting treated less, they're getting less personal protection uh, equipment. They're already carrying the burden of our climate crisis and it's just further exposed now. That's why we need to pass immediately both an emergency and permanent paid family and medical leave. We can't be the only industrialized country in the world not to have it. People shouldn't be choosing whether to go to their job and spread COVID-19 or put food on the table. We need to seize this moment right now and use the collective power of our voice to make real lasting change for everyone. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Alan Casey, Natalia Linos, and Ben Siegel, three of the nine Democratic candidates running for Congress to represent Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District. That's a district that includes parts of Bristol, Middlesex, Norfolk, Plymouth, and Worcester counties. Whoever wins the Democratic primary will then face one of the two Republican candidates also running for the seat, Air Force veterans Julie Hall or David Rosa. Second question, and I'm going to start with you, Ben Siegel. All nine of you fourth district candidates are from Newton, Brookline, or Wellesley, the northern, and it's fair to say wealthier part of the fourth district, which also includes the less wealthy towns of Fall River and Taunton. None of you can win this race without big support from those cities. What issues specific to them do you pledge to address if elected? Thanks, Kelly. Although I've lived in Brookline since 2003, I actually grew up in a lower middle class home in Braintree, a town so similar uh, and a family so similar to the majority of the district. So I am the people's candidate, truly understanding that perspective of the middle class. My dad used to oversee public housing authorities in Taunton and Fall River. So I used to visit with him uh, as a kid. My brother lives in Franklin. My cousins all grew up in Sharon. My kids went to school in Newton and now Brookline. Kelly, I'm also the first and still only candidate who's visited all 34 cities and towns in the district. We need to make sure that all 34 cities and towns have a voice at the table. That's why I will create an advisory board comprised of representatives from all 34 cities and towns who will meet between four and six times a year that will be extremely diverse intergenerationally, geographically and economically so we can hear their voices and we can all come together because we're so much stronger when we are united than when we are divided. Okay, thank you. Natalia. So Kelly, I grew up in Greece 
um, until I was 17 when I moved to Massachusetts. And while I was born to international students here in the U.S. and therefore had citizenship, I understand the challenges that families face, including immigrant families. And you know, it's been wonderful to go down to the South Coast and meet with Portuguese American families and other communities. But I think what I'm hearing loud and clear is that they will want me to think about, obviously, COVID, and that is a skill that I have, but also jobs. You know, and there is such potential in terms of renewable energy down by the South Coast. We're talking about offshore wind, but also I was talking to Ted, who lives in Taunton, and he was saying, you know, solar is also something that he feels that he has been able to advance himself uh, through by getting involved. So I think green jobs and a just transition is something that I will be pushing for and supporting. I also, you know, coming from the health care and public health side, I know deeply how much and how many families have been hurt by the opioid overdose crisis. In New York City, I worked to ensure that we had naloxone, the, you know, the opioid overdose drug available to communities, that we really invested in community support. So I will be fighting for better health, better jobs, and better development. My platform is around healthy neighborhoods. This is something we need to fight for, and I will be fighting for every single resident in our district, and I will be focusing on anybody who has been left behind by previous policies. Thank you. Alan Casey. Well, Kelly, I am also the son of immigrants. My father was an immigrant from Iran. He was a doctor. My mother's family came from Italy. Uh, she was a nurse, and I was actually born in western Pennsylvania and spent the first few years of my life in Catanning, where my grandparents lived. Uh, Catanning is very similar to the southern part of this district, Taunton, Fall River, uh, gateway cities like Attleboro, North Attleboro, et cetera. Uh, and it was an industrial giant in the 20th century because of the coal mines, the factories, the steel mills. Uh, and uh, the same thing was with Taunton, Fall River, et cetera. And so what we have to do is bring those communities into the 21st century economy. Uh, and I have been a job creator. I started City Year, given over 33,000 young people their very first job. Uh, I'm doing something very unique in the race, which is I have put together my legislative action plan for all 34 cities and towns, having talked to hundreds of voters to find out what are the top assets in your community and what are the local challenges? And then what could I do as a congressperson to make a difference? Because I do think we're going to be in a New Deal moment and things are going to be moved very fast. And I've done the homework to be ready. So, for example, I've uh, learned that Somerset, Brayton Point can be converted uh, to clean energy jobs. And I learned that the Miles Standish Industrial Park in Taunton is a great resource that can be expanded for job training programs, leveraging Bristol Community College in the district. I've really taken the time to learn what's needed, especially in the southern part of the district, because I think that's where uh, the focus and energy needs to be. Okay, thank you so much. Everybody in the race is heavily credentialed with stellar academic backgrounds, solid records of service, community or military, impressive leadership roles. So what makes you uniquely qualified to represent this district in a way the other candidates aren't. Natalia. Thanks so much, Kelly. And it's so important to stress what a great pool of candidates and choices people have. I think none of my credentials are important in normal times. You know, I'm a public health expert and I'm someone who has spent a decade in global experience. But at this moment in time, during a pandemic, a global pandemic, I think those two skills are entirely um, not only just relevant, they're essential. Our Congress right now has 14 scientists, only one person with a PhD in public health. And that same Congress is going to be making some of the most critical decisions that require 
people to understand the science. So I believe that my unique qualifications are that I have the science background and the training, that as a social epidemiologist, I have worked on some of the most important issues for our district, including housing segregation, racial justice, and that at the UN, I led the climate and health portfolio. So yes, I'm, I'm maybe the only one with a graduate degree, you know, a doctorate degree in this pool. And usually you don't need that, but we're not in usual times. Alan Casey. Not to leave that's right. It's a tremendous field, and I'm honored to be running with such a great group. Uh, I think uh, unique qualifications for me, first of all, this is fundamentally a service job. That's why I'm running. Uh, I started the City Year Program, which is a service program. We served as the model inspiration for AmeriCorps, and we, we realized we had to build a movement. I also believe that we are in a time of movement politics. As I said at the beginning, it's extraordinary to see the energy of people uh, it started with the Women's March. I helped organize that in Boston and created the Sister March Network. It continued with March for Our Lives, and I was very involved with that, helping to create the 800 sibling marches. Uh, and so I think what's unique in terms of my experience is I've done, as a movement leader, built an organization from scratch, inspired a federal program, AmeriCorps, and then built the movement to help pass three major pieces of federal legislation, working closely with Senator Kennedy for 20 years, President Clinton, and President Obama. Uh, my skill set is helping to organize people, empower them, figuring out how to use that energy to put people before politics and break open the door of Congress and get Congress to follow the people's will. Thank you. Ben Siegel. Thank you, Kelly. I think what differentiates me from everyone else is diversity, approach, and being a uniter and bridge builder. It's important now more than ever that we elect a diverse leader like myself, and you said at the beginning, who would be the first Latino ever elected to Congress from Massachusetts. Almost 15% of the state is Latino now. Over 20% of the students under 18 are Latino. This is an important part, and it's not just for being Latino. It's someone who truly understands the diverse perspectives of the community, but also someone who understands the diverse perspectives of growing up in a middle-class family, of raising four children like I am myself, who will all be in the Brookline schools as well. Number two is approach. From day one, our entire theme of our campaign is we the fourth, that we are all in this together and that we are stronger when we are united than we are divided. And the one thing that binds us all together is access to opportunities. And third is being a uniter and a bridge builder. We need a leader who also doesn't just talk about um, fighting racism because it's convenient, but who's actually been advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion for years. I created the first national task force for Jewish uh, and Latino young adults. I created the first national task force for Jewish uh, Muslim young adults. These are things that we need now more than ever. I've been president of the Hispanic Bar Association of New England for the last few years, and as the national director of all client and community relations at one of the largest law firms in the country, my job was breaking down silos for better collaboration to provide better client services. That's something that none of the other candidates, if you take all three of those areas together, diversity, approach, and bridge building, that none of the other candidates have. All right. So now I'm going to ask some questions specific to each of you, and I'm going to start with you, Ben Siegel. You have taken a strong stand on immigration reform, calling for a permanent status for the DREAMers, uh, people under the temporary protected status, creating a pathway to citizenship for all 12 million undocumented immigrants. Uh, does your stand align with the residents of the 4th? Is immigration reform a priority uh, for the 4th District residents? 
I think we're seeing it's a priority even more so now than ever because of the disparities and inequalities we're seeing under COVID. We tell our immigrant population here that their jobs are essential. They're our healthcare workers, our home healthcare workers. They are working in our grocery stores, in our farms, but then we don't treat their lives as essential. We have an amazing history of immigrants here. Um, a huge percentage of our entrepreneurs, a large percentage, I think it's almost 60% of our Fortune 500 CEOs in Massachusetts are immigrants. Um, this is something that's really important and we need to protect them. So we need to give them unemployment assistance. They should have driver's license and they should have health care coverage. It's not just for them and it's a moral uh, and ethical obligation for all these, but it's a safety issue as well. It's an economic issue and it's an education issue. They are our neighbors and they're risking their lives for all of us, Callie, to be safe. And so we need to treat them just like we treat everyone else. Let's continue our proud history here of amazing immigrants doing amazing things, advancing science and technology to better the human condition here in Massachusetts and to better our society. And let's treat everyone as if we're one community working to solve these big issues. Natalia, uh, what does your singular experience as a healthcare professional prepare you to represent the district on a broad spectrum of issues? I know you tried to express that a little bit earlier, but I think a lot of people might look at your resume and say, well, this is great. We, we need a doctor in this time, but there are so many other issues to tackle. So, Kelly, I think it is important to talk about my experience outside of a lab. I haven't been sitting for, you know, 15 years in a lab or, or looking at, you know, I'm a social epidemiologist and a social epidemiologist knows that our health is not shaped purely by healthcare access, although that is so important. And that's why among the three of us on this call today, I'm the only one who is actually advocating for Medicare for all. But we know that health is shaped by our neighborhoods, by where we live, where we love, where we play, where we go to school. And I have dedicated my career to ensure that the laws and policies are in place so that everybody can live a future that is healthy. So let me give you an example. In a wealthy neighborhood in Newton, you have a life expectancy that is 26 years longer than some of the poorer neighborhoods in the South Coast. And that is unfair, unjust, and it is preventable. And I have worked to prevent premature death at many different levels and in many different environments. So at the New York City Health Department, I worked to ensure that we had community health clinics available in different communities. I worked to ensure that we had environmental justice because air pollution is disproportionately impacting our communities of color and poorer communities. I have worked to ensure that we tackled the opioid overdose crisis from the bottom up and ensuring that communities had the tools they needed. I've been working right now with the Poor People's Campaign, the, their Health Justice Advisory Committee, to ensure that we think about workers and who is getting access to PPE and who is not. So I have the experience, although I have the degree and the training as a social epidemiologist to get us through this crisis, I am not your typical academic. I worked at the United Nations as a speechwriter and a key advisor to the former Prime Minister of New Zealand when she headed the UN Development Program. And in that capacity, I sat in meetings with a lot of politicians, heads of states, ministers, to negotiate some of the most difficult challenges, whether we were talking about gender equality in the Middle East, where I worked for many years, or climate change, where I met with the Minister of Health of Fiji, and he was saying, our country is going underwater now. What do I do to safe-proof my hospitals? So I have the experience 
on the ground in many different roles. And I'm not just an epidemiologist, but for this moment in time, I also have those skill sets. And for the future, having done as much as I have on climate change, I feel like I'll be one of the strongest advocates. And lastly, on racial justice, I have been spending an entire career looking at maternal mortality, disparities for black and white moms, and I'm the only candidate that is actually calling for reparations as the foundational legislation in order to build a future that is actually dealing with structural inequities and, and calling for real reform. All right. Thank you. Alan Casey, you've run for Senate twice before, but you've never held a local office. How do you persuade constituents that they should choose you over others in the field who do have that local government experience? Well, thank you, Kelly. So, uh, yes, I have not spent my life in politics. I did run for the Senate, but I've spent my life as a nonprofit entrepreneur, as an organization builder, as a movement builder. I started City Year. I've been working in local issues for more than 30 years now. I've worked in neighborhoods. I understand that, as my good friend Brian Stevenson says, you have to be proximate. You have to understand and work side by side with people. We started City Year to inspire young people to act on their idealism, discover their justice nerves, uh, realize that they can make a difference, and to help uh, bring about the goals of the civil rights movement. Because we changed laws in the 1960s, but you only change experience, uh, hearts and minds through experience. So I've been working on racial justice my whole life. I've also taken the time, as I mentioned, inspired by Paul Songus, who was a mentor of mine, and what he did in Lowell, to understand very specifically what each local community, the 34 cities and towns in this district need. First of all, what their assets are. Because I've learned in making change, you start from assets. Every single community in this district has incredible resources. People are proud of where they live, have a sense of community. And then how do you take on the the challenges that are real? Um, So I think I, I bring that perspective. I also think, you know, this country was founded not for people who are lifelong politicians. You know, the the idea was people would have their lives, they'd get real world experience, and then they'd serve in office and then go back. I've also put out a comprehensive plan to fix our democracy that's been endorsed by uh, Larry Lessig, a democracy champion, where I call for uh, ending lobbying by all members of Congress. I think it's crazy that you go serve in Congress and then you cash out and ending lobbying for people who serve in the executive branch. And I'm honored that I've been endorsed by Senator Mark Pacheco, the Dean of our Senate, the longest serving state Senator from Taunton. I've been endorsed by State Representative Jeff Roy from Franklin, an extraordinary public servant, by Holly Ryan, Newton City Councilor, who's also was one of the very first transgender women elected to office in Massachusetts in the country. And she has been a longtime activist. I was so honored because she said her community needs a champion. And because of the work I've done, she's supporting me and national figures like Ambassador Susan Rice and General Stanley McChrystal and Senator Michael Bennett and Congressperson Jamie Raskin uh, and uh, Mayor Mitch Landrieu uh, and others. So I think that uh, I, I have the experience working very locally and understanding local issues, but also have the ability to move because I've done it as a, as a citizen, as a person, move things through Capitol Hill. I know how that place works and I know how to tap this movement energy, which I think gives us the extraordinary moment. We, we can't let the 160,000 people that have died, the millions of people that are protesting uh, go in vain. We have to leave this moment with a country that's more fair, more intersectional and more just. And that's what I will champion. 
Thank you. Uh, ben Siegel, uh, back to you. All of you disagree with each other. You have your very specific plans for how to go forward and what, what makes you each stand out. But you've gone a step further with regard to another of the candidates in the race um, and called for Jake Auchincloss to uh, step down, actually. Tell me why. Oh, I think there's several reasons, Callie. I think we are living in a time where we all need to be allies for each other's community. And when we have one candidate who has uh, attacked the Muslim community uh, with burning the Koran and his comments there, who have attacked the LGBTQ community, the black community, who takes the fossil fuel pledge, then takes money from fossil fuel companies and turns around and says that's an outdated pledge. You have someone who's used misogynistic language towards several of the women um, during our forums and debates. And you have someone who was a Republican um, worked in the Republican Party, so not just voted Republican, worked in the Republican Party and started their own Republican consulting firm. I think we're seeing a pattern of language, a pattern of actions that is just not at the, uh, at the character level that we all deserve. We need someone who's going to look out for everyone in this community, who's not going to buy your votes and whose parents are not gonna put together a super PAC in order to buy your votes, but who's gonna amplify your voices. And I don't believe that's that candidate. And I believe that I am that candidate. And it's hard for me to see, and I don't want the people of this fourth district to put forward a candidate that's gonna um, pull the wool over their eyes. Um, so I hope everyone really looks at each of these candidates to see what they're truly all about. Thank you. Uh, Natalia, you've got a comprehensive plan to deal with the COVID-19 response, and I'm wondering if you could tease out what you would do at a time when millions of Americans have just lost health care and millions more have no access to Medicaid or the Affordable Care Act. Thanks so much, Kelly. Yes, my plan is very detailed, and it talks about um, really using this moment to transform our core systems to ensure that in the future we do have Medicare for all, that we do have unemployment insurance that works. In the immediate term, I believe we need to have the minute someone um, is eligible for uninsurance that they get enrolled in Medicaid because it is unfair for people to both lose their jobs and their health insurance at a time of a crisis. But my plan is really comprehensive in the sense that it talks about how we stage our recovery. As a mom of a seven-year-old and three-year-old kids, I share in the fear of every parent we are scared of sending our kids back to school, but we're equally scared about them not going back to school because how are we supposed to work? If you work outside the home, who's gonna take care of the kids? Are you gonna leave the older child taking care of the younger child? If you work inside the home, how are you supposed to focus? So I deeply worry that getting it wrong is going to lead us not only to an unequitable impact, we've already seen it. You know, Black Americans, Indigenous Americans, Latinx communities have been hit so hard but my worry, Kelly, is that in five years' time, the educational attainment between different communities will have widened tremendously. Who gets to go back to work or stay employed will be defined by what type of work they do. People who are privileged and get to work from home can stay employed. Others will lose their jobs. So my plan is very much focused on the immediate, ensuring that families have money to stay home because it is not safe to be sending people back to work right now in most of our country, that we have schools that are able to reopen this school year. It might not be this fall, but it might be this spring safely. And that means the federal government putting in money and providing resources to those schools to refurbish their classrooms, to ensure that they can do smaller teacher to student ratio. 
And then the last part, Kelly, of my plan is that realistically, if we don't use this opportunity to call for Medicare for All, when we have seen what the cost of an action is, if we don't use this opportunity to put all the federal money and align this recovery with a green recovery, green jobs, five years down the line, we will be worse off and again at risk for another pandemic closing out and closing our economy. So yes, as a public health expert, I know that we need to get the public health response right first. Every economist agrees that unless we get the public health um, response right, our economy will be in shambles for years, not just months. So there, I want to be honest with the public that the next few months and years will be difficult. But the federal government must and can step in to provide resources to ensure that nobody needs to go to work because they're scared of going homeless or putting food on the table. And I will be that strong advocate for an equitable response. Alan Casey, um, you've talked about looking at all the all these major problems uh, in an intersectional way. I, I think uh, that makes sense to some people. But which one of these problems do you think that people need to pay more attention to? There is a lot on the table right now. But of your major concerns, the ones that you want to address in your new deal, which one do you urge the constituents of the 4th District to pay attention to? Well, thank you, Callie. You know, I do think it's intersectional and we need to tackle them all together. I do think that we can have an integrated effort. It's why I've called for a federal jobs guarantee and a million young people in national service. This is a perfect example. We need to put our young people back to work, but we can also take that energy to fight the coronavirus. We need 300,000 contact tracers. Well, young people are perfect for that. We need to figure out how we're going to safely educate our kids. Half of AmeriCorps works in education. Uh, we can have half a million young people working with kids, either if the scientists tell us we can safely open schools, we're going to have to cut class sizes in half. We can't double our teacher workforce overnight, but we could double the uh, adults in the schools by putting half a million people into AmeriCorps in education. We need to tackle uh, the climate crisis, and we could have a 21st century civilian conservation corps. Again, AmeriCorps has been here for 25 years. We created that from scratch in three months and had 300,000 people serving. So. Uh, and we also need to have a justice corps to make sure the kids are still getting school breakfast, our elderly are being taken care of and they're not isolated, housing is being built. So I do think that it's not just one. And as we saw during the New Deal, we did Social Security, we did the Wagner Act to improve labor organizing rights, we did the Work Progress Administration, we did the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, there was an all hands on deck. We have to look at the whole comprehensive nature. And this is more challenging because it's healthcare as well as jobs. So that's how I'd approach it. Thank you very much. And I want to thank all of you for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. It's so great to finally be on with you. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Alan Casey is a social entrepreneur, founder and CEO of Be The Change Incorporated and co-founder of City Year, an education-focused national service program for young adults. Natalia Linos is an epidemiologist and executive director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard. And Ben Siegel is a Brookline attorney and former director of client and community relations, special counsel at MITS Levin. Part three of our three-part congressional forum airs on next week's show, but you can listen to the entire three-part 4th District Congressional Forum right now on WGBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. A note to listeners, we tape the three parts of the forum on Monday, August 10th. Three days later, Dave Cavell dropped out, throwing his support to candidate Jesse Murmel, but he remains on the ballot.
Coming up, what does 100 years of women's voting rights sound like? A special concert of music written by women from the past and present. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Susan B. Anthony, probably the nation's most famous suffragette, went to jail for casting a ballot when it was illegal for women to vote. Here is actress Lily Taylor reading her words as she addressed the court, appealing her conviction. Robbed of the fundamental privilege of citizenship, I am degraded from the status of a citizen to that of a subject. And not only myself individually, but all of my sex are, by yours honor verdict, doomed to political subjection under this so-called Republican form of government. This year marks 100 years that women were guaranteed the right to vote after a hard-fought battle for the passage of the 19th Amendment. To be clear, the 19th Amendment, which was officially ratified on August 18, 1920, was a victory for white women voters. Black women and other women of color didn't gain the right until President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Across the country, 19th Amendment commemorative events have been underway all year, including one held this past Tuesday, 100 years later to the day, by the Boston Landmarks Orchestra. The orchestra marked the historic centennial with a concert of music comprised entirely of music written by women, as well as a tribute to honored historical figures. Joining me remotely, Grace Kelly, Boston native, singer, saxophonist, composer, host of the Landmarks Orchestra's concert, She's the First, Music to Celebrate the 19th Amendment Centennial. Grace is also co-creator of our very own Under the Radar theme music. Welcome back, Grace. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's a real pleasure. Oh, I'm glad to have you. And Christopher Wilkins, music director of Landmarks Orchestra, who conducted the She's the First concert. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So first, let me close the circle and say of Susan B. Anthony, uh, President Trump, on the official ratification day earlier this week, pardoned Susan B. Anthony with an official presidential pardon. Some activists said she didn't want to be pardoned, that she, in fact, used her jailing as a way to introduce other women to the concept of voting and help them uh, become activists. But nevertheless, she is now officially pardoned. And so uh, that's a way for us to talk about how tough all these women were that you are celebrating in the concert, She's the First. Um, Let's talk about how the concert came to be. Christopher. We've been planning this for a couple of years, and our original intention, of course, was to do it out on the Esplanade at the Hat Shell, where we normally perform. We're working with the uh, Women's Heritage Trail and the Boston Women's Suffrage Trail and their leadership, and we're part of the overall community Uh, commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So all of that was was planned for a long time. We just suddenly had to shift 
the specifics of what we were going to do and where we were going to do it and what music we were going to perform. Well, Grace Kelly, this is where you live, um, being a pioneer <laughs> out there uh, creating music uh, and uh, celebrating women who are composers and writers and artists, as you are. So um, how did you come to pick the music on the program, which, as we've said, is all written by women? Christopher and I worked together to figure out what my pieces would be. We played my original composition, Every Road I Walked, which is a song I wrote in 2016. And this time we played that same song, which we thought would be super fitting for this whole storyline and celebrating such amazing women composers. And I was also blessed to be the MC as well. So we brought that to the table to open up the program. And then one of my songs called She's the First, which is a song I wrote a little while ago for an amazing nonprofit called She's the First, who does so much for girls' education. And I'm dear friends with the CEO and, and co-founder. We actually made the orchestral debut of that particular song. And the rest of the songs were um, Christopher's picks. And I have to say, I was hipped to some new female classical composers that I did not know about. So I learned so much in this process. I'm in absolute awe. So this program just spoke straight to my heart and I was just so delighted to be a part of it. Well, let's uh, uh, listen to a clip from your piece, Every Road I Walked, which, as you said, opened up the concert and it was performed live on Tuesday. So let's take a listen. Christopher, how did you pick the other pieces for the program? There's much to choose from. People may think there's not that much music written by women, but there is. <laughs> so where do you begin? It, it, yeah. That's the hard part, of course, is making the choices. There is a lot. There's, and none of it is known. I mean, there are no women in what we call the Western canon. It's, it's hard to believe in 2020 that that statement is still true. But it is. So there, there were some obvious choices, you know, Boston's great pioneering woman composer, Amy Beach, the only name that is inscribed on the hat shell where we normally perform. So that was an easy call. And Grace hosted much of this from the Boston Women's Memorial, which is a tribute to three extraordinary women who helped shape Boston's history but that was on the road to the vote. It's part of why Every Road I Walk, Grace's song, is, was such a great fit with our theme because that is on the suffrage trail, Boston Women's Suffrage Trail. And there is a beautiful statue, Meredith Bergman's, the sculptor of Phyllis Wheatley. So Boston's colonial era poet, the first black poet in America. And we happened in 2005 before I was involved with Landmarks, and Charles Ansbacher, our founder, uh, commissioned a composer in Kiro Okoye 
to write a work for children about Phyllis Wheatley, a narrated work telling her story. So that was an easy choice. And another of Nkiro's uh, wonderful pieces that's getting a lot of play these days all around the country is from her opera on Harriet Tubman. So we did really the big sort of the, the signature aria from that opera, I Am Harriet Tubman, Free Woman. Let's, let's, let's stop and take a listen to that. We have a little clip. Great. Here to perform an aria from that opera is soprano Cynthia Pullum. Cynthia has pre-recorded the aria from her home in Japan, but the orchestra accompanies her live from the studio at Futura Productions in Roslindale. Christopher, is it possible that because you had to regroup in the era of COVID-19 and produce this concert the way you did, that that's actually more participation across the world in ways that it might not have been possible where you have been in the hat shell? And, and it, of course, as Grace is well aware, it pushed us to do things that we had not originally planned to do. So there are multiple graces happening throughout the show. There's the grace on Commonwealth Avenue, <laughs> and then there's the grace in the Charles Street Jail, now known as Liberty Hotel, and then there's grace singing at Futura Studios in, in uh, Roslindale, but we didn't allow singing in the room with the orchestra, so that had to be pre-recorded. And then there's the live grace who's playing saxophone, and these are all mixed in together. You heard Grace say that Cynthia Pullum was in Japan and uh, our other wonderful soloist, Brianna J. Robinson, pre-recorded her solo. So we're constantly interacting with uh, pre-recorded material and, and live musicians. And it was, it was quite a challenge, something I've never attempted before this summer. Let me move on to another piece played in the concert. This is a, a woman I was unfamiliar with, a composer, Ethel Smythe. Uh, she was also a suffragette, and um, I was also unfamiliar with her piece, The March of the Women, which actually became an anthem. But before we talk about that, uh, let's hear a clip from Ethel Smythe's The March of the Women. By the way, we should mention that, Christopher, you shared conducting duties with Catherine Chan, and she conducted this piece uh, during the concert, The March of the Women. So, Grace, let's talk about more it, this piece becoming an anthem. So all over the world, this is when suffragettes were in place, they played this? Yeah, I mean, this is—I uh, think, Christopher, you probably know more of the history, but I, I just have to say that, you know, playing this song and listening to the song is so— 
empowering because here you have you know you're hearing flutes and violins playing this theme on top but the way the melody is constructed is it's so it's so melodic and beautiful but so strong and so I will say when I was playing it with the orchestra live it just felt like this beautiful celebration but also you know standing tall on two feet and I think musically that is just such a powerful composition and I I can hear how that theme is simple but it's beautiful and it's dare I say it's quite catchy and so I think you know as you just played that clip Kelly it's like I can just groove to that my whole day it really (laughs) is an anthem it's a march it's it's very empowering it's really stirring isn't it but people people should go and watch the show um at the Boston Landmarks Orchestra website and see Grace introduce this in a priceless way about Ethel Smythe going to jail. She, she was by far and away the most celebrated female composer of her day. She was performed at the New York's Metropolitan Opera Company. Sir Thomas Beecham and other major conductors championed her work, but she gave up composing for two years so that she, she could work on the women, women's right to vote in England principally, but really internationally. And uh, Grace's description of what she did to cause her to be thrown into jail is something not to be missed. So, um, Christopher, did that mess up her career? I mean, you know, this this no. was quite. I, I need for people to understand that that being a suffragette, that speaking out for women, women's right to vote, was quite controversial. Yeah, I don't think that that, that she really had much of a career to mess up because mm. women simply were not promoted as as composers. It just wasn't wasn't there, and it's amazingly, it's still true today to far too great a degree. And Grace and I were talking about this the other day and the fact that as a saxophonist, as a jazz performer, period, but especially playing the saxophone, you're a trailblazer even today in 2020. And the question is, how can that be? You know, why, how do you even explain that? And my only answer is there are no role models. So it's Mm -hmm. a self-perpetuating scarcity because you don't see yourself as a as a girl growing up as a saxophone player or as a composer because you don't have the role model in your mind. Exactly. That brings me to, uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention that there were so many other women of color in this march, even though it ended up being at the first for white women voters only. And so we're learning in this 100th anniversary their names. Grace, I learned about a Dr. Mabel Ping Han Lee, and um, she marched in that huge, big march in Washington, D.C. with all the suffragettes, even though she knew that because of the Chinese exclusion laws, she would not be able to vote. She knew then. The wow. black women were thinking that they were going to be included, but but she knew. Wow. So these are names that we're learning now. So when you hear something like the March of the Women, I just really get a sense of uh, unity, uh, even though I know that the reality of it at the time was that that though everybody was around, everybody didn't benefit right away. But mm. my question to you is, as an Asian-American woman, here we have Catherine Chan performing this piece specifically, and uh, the the amendment eventually all came t- to the rest of us. Just Was that an extra feeling about uh, listening to this music by this woman who was little known in her time, but had something to say 
uh, musically about this period? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, the feeling in the air while playing that and getting to meet Catherine, who is conducting at the moment, and um, just feel the whole history, also the news of Kamala Harris, and just, you know, it all kind of came together. And in my spirit, I was just so proud to be there celebrating these these women and these women composers and to get much deeper into learning about um, who they were, you know, and uh, it absolutely came through in the music. And I was really trying to channel that. Actually, not trying. It was happening. <laughs> it was happening <laughs> just because, you know, it's like, this is energetically, I was putting that out, like, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a celebration. Amazing. So it's a coincidence that the song, She's the First, you composed it for a group named She's the First, but here we are at a time of the first. So mm -hmm. it worked perfectly. Tell me a little bit about what you were thinking of as you brought that piece together, as you composed that piece. Those of us who do not have these skills are always curious about where it starts. Yeah, well, you know, originally when I saw um, the amazing work that the She's the First nonprofit was doing for girls' education, but I, I was saying, you guys, you need an anthem, you need a, a song, you know? So then I, I, I uh, got together with my dear friend, brilliant writer, April Bender, and we set out to write the song as an anthem for these girls that they could sing. They could sing as they were walking to school. They could sing together. They could celebrate. Um, I also, around that time, was watching Hillary Clinton's speech, and I actually, you know, was very inspired by some of her words. And so I took some notes in my journal as I was uh, watching her speak. And then, you know, I came up with this melody, and I really, I just, a lot of times what happens when I am thinking of something, I, I feel a feeling and that turns into melody. And then later we took some of uh, the words I had written down and really sussed it out to create something that we felt like a lot of girls could sing along with, you know, and sure enough, it's been a beautiful gift to hear the song, you know, has been touching girls all around the world and they have been they've been singing along they've been listening to it as they're going to school they're going to their fundraisers they're supporting their sisters around the world so you know um it was very very cool to hear the orchestral debut of this which i think brought even more you know grandness to the song well, as uh, Christopher said, you can uh, our listeners can hear the whole thing on the Boston Landmarks Orchestra page. But here's a clip from your song, She's the First, written and performed by Grace Kelly. She's got the grin, the grace. She's got the heart of the brave. She's not afraid of the chase. She is the first to dance, first to Fabulous. She's the Thank first. You. I love it. Um, Christopher Wilkins, are there many uh, orchestral centennial concerts this year? What I'm getting to is it, it feels to me like you've created a, a unique way to respond to this moment. Well, I don't think there's many orchestra concerts happening anywhere in the United States right now. Well, good so point. we, we yes. feel fortunate <laughs> that we've had the opportunity to do this. And it's taken some ingenuity and some imagination and a lot of teamwork from, you know, a very small management team, Arthur Rishi. I have to give him huge credit for figuring out a lot of how we're going to do this. And Steve Colby, our audio engineer, and um, the 
Rob Fagnett, who, who's a video producer who just did such a fantastic job for us. So um, no, I think we're one of the few orchestras that's even active, but I'm just so grateful that we could find a way to commemorate this really important moment for women and for racial justice, because this is the third program that we've done this summer. Uh, a lot of our composers have been black composers, even on this program, three of the seven women composers are black composers. So it's been, it's been interesting to have so much in the news that, that people are really engaged with that we could also engage with on a musical platform. So in other words, this, this concert may itself be a piece of history. Oh, I, sounds like. I think so. And I think there's a bit of a history lesson yeah. in this concert. I mean, Grace's narration really walks you through a lot of stories of really interesting stories of women who were artistically accomplished, but also really active socially in terms of the social movement and engagement. And, and you mentioned the parallels between abolition and suffrage, and that especially in Boston, many of the same people were actively working on both issues. And then there was a tension between the two. Frederick Douglass pulled away from supporting women's right to vote for the same reason that the women were nervous, that they were afraid that they would lose part of their coalition, the, the ones who wanted the women but didn't believe in full abolition or whatever the complications were. I mean, it's a really interesting set of, of, of historical issues, but uh, we were able to engage with them. Well, I thank both of you for joining me. Uh, congratulations on uh, quite an accomplishment and giving us all a lot of new information and celebrating history and the women who made it. Thank you, Callie. Yeah, thank you so much, Callie. Grace Kelly is a Boston native singer, saxophonist, composer, host of the Landmark Orchestra's concert, She's the First, music to celebrate the 19th Amendment centennial. She's also co-creator of the Under the Radar theme music. Christopher Wilkins is the music director of the Boston Landmarks Orchestra, who conducted the She's the First concert. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.